Put on the Armour, uh, part three from our series in the Epistle to the Ephesians, and this is part 27 in that series. We'll see if we can get to part 30. Anyway, I'll let you know. Stay tuned. So we're looking at just one verse this morning. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. We're looking at the the final two pieces of the armory that God has given us as his children, as his soldiers, as part of his army. We've looked at the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel, the shield of faith, and this morning the helmet and the sword. Some might think that when it comes to an armory, do we really need all this stuff? Don't we just need one or two? All you need is faith, right? All you need is truth. All you need is to wield the sword. No, every piece is given to us by God because it is necessary for the battle. And this battle is not against flesh and blood. That we, that as hard as that is, that is actually easy compared to the battle that we're facing, the principalities and powers. And more than that, it's, isn't it great to know that we're not in this battle alone, that God is fighting, is, is fighting with us, he's fighting for us. And no matter how hot, how difficult the battle gets, you can never be daunted because God is on our side. Because as the Bible says, if God is for you, nothing can be against you. So let's look first of all then at the helmet of salvation, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. No Roman soldier would go into battle without, without his helmet as he would instantly be exposed to the deadliest of, of blows that could come from anywhere. But with his helmet in place, the, the soldier could fight with, with confidence. The Roman helmet was, made, was known as the gallia uh, in Latin. It, it could vary quite a bit in design because there was no... Uh, mass production in those days like we have today. Each helmet was made by by hand, individually. And uh, every helmet had its own little quirks. Some of them uh, even had, you know, the um, some feathers and, and other stuff on top to make it look pretty depending on your rank. Um, the helmets were made of metal as you gather, and uh, inside it was covered with, with leather. Also, some of them had the cheek plates and also protection for the back, of, the back of the neck. In warfare, the helmet and the sword, as the soldier was getting dressed, was putting on his armoury, the, the helmet and the sword were the last two pieces of the armoury that he would put on. And because the helmet was hot and uncomfortable, it would only be put on when the soldier 
faced impending danger. That's why many times you could, in some of the pictures, you see them carrying the helmet on the side and his, his sword sort of hanging from, from the belt. It's interesting, I, um, regarding helmets, even today motorbike riders don't want to wear the helmets because it's a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, in, in South America there are, in, and in Africa there are fines, obviously, if you don't wear your helmets, if you're riding your motorbike. So they do carry the helmets with them, but they carry it in their elbows so they don't, because that's, they want to protect their elbows with their helmet and anyway. Statistics show that 80% of people in bike crashes who suffered a head injury were not wearing a helmet. So this is why protecting the head is obviously very, very important. So when we, this morning we're looking at the helmet and it's called the helmet of salvation. And we ask what, what does salvation have to do with the, with the helmet? And salvation, as we know, is, is one of the, the biggest words in the scriptures. It's also known with other words, redemption, uh, deliverance. They are also used when we talk about salvation. So I think we understand what salvation means. The problem is that we see salvation as being one-dimensional. But we need to take a closer look at what salvation entails. And it's helpful for us to see salvation in three tenses, past, present and future, so we can understand a little bit of what this word means. So first of all, in the past. In the past we were saved from the penalty of sin. For Christians, salvation means receiving deliverance from the eternal death penalty that was hanging over literally our head. Through faith in Christ, I am no longer guilty. This is what is entailed in the doctrine of justification, an event that happened in Calvary 2,000 years ago. My sins have already been removed and Christ's perfect obedience, which I could never do, I could never attain, he's given that obedience, transferred it to me. It was imputed to me. Earlier in Ephesians, you remember the the passage, those wonderful words, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved. You have been saved. That's the past. Through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that is the, the past event. And in and 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 this regard, the great reformer Martin Luther once said, the life of Christianity consists of Possessive, possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It is quite another to say he is my saviour and my Lord. And it doesn't stop there. He, he went on to say the devil can say the first. Even the devil can say Christ is a saviour. 
But only the true Christian alone can say the second, that Christ is my Saviour. How good is that? Secondly, salvation in the present. So even though I I was saved from the penalty of sin, I am now being saved from the power of sin. If the past event is justification, this is now what we call sanctification. Once the penalty is removed, we spend the rest of our of our days living in faith that God is saving us from the power of sin. This is what it means that the righteous will live by faith. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us at the moment of salvation and and, and from that moment it it is an event but it's also a process, the process of sanctification, changing our lives in conformity to the image of Jesus to his personhood. And as we allow, as we mature, we allow the Spirit to lead us and guide us, we grow in grace. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 we read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, who are being saved, it is the power of God. And to that verse, you can add others, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's that constant, constant regeneration, sanctification process that can be so frustrating at times, isn't it? So this verse shows us that the process of salvation is ongoing so that it is a present reality but it's also, obviously, we are in the present because of what has happened in the past. But it doesn't stop there. There is also the future aspect of salvation. In the past we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present we are being saved from the power of sin And in the future, we will finally be safe from the presence of sin. Romans 5.9 tells us, "Having Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We shall be. That's the future. And this is what we call glorification. It is a future work of God when the dead will be raised and with new bodies will be ushered finally into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, how we look forward to that day. We all want to get there, but not so quickly. God is not done with us just yet. But to wear the helmet of salvation means to live every day focused on eternity and the promised future that we have with God and that has to impact, that has to impact the way that we live our lives today, here and now. We belong to the kingdom of heaven. 
We are no longer. We live here, but this is not our kingdom. So, because of this, protecting our head is important because for believers, the battlefield often takes place in the mind. And Satan constantly fires his, his assaults of doubts. Try to make us believe lies. He wants us to doubt our worth and, and to distort God's promises to us. And, and the helmet of salvation gives us the confidence and, and the safety, the protection during these attacks of the enemy. And we need to protect our mind against anything that would disorient us or throw us off track or destroy us, such as discouragement and deceit. Discouragement is so big, so real. It's a constant battle. And it's part of the frustration, right? This is the way it should be and this is the way it is. In so many areas of our lives, this is where the ideal, because, Lord, I want to be there, I already want to be in glory, and yet the frustration and discouragement that we experience each and every day is real. I know it, personally. So this is why we need to be thinking straight. We need each other to help one another and encourage one another to keep us on track. And and this is why Peter told us to be sober-minded. And the Apostle Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-9, but let us who are of the day be sober, be sober. Think straight. Clear-minded. Have a clear head putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. There's that word again, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's remember that salvation is more than just future benefits. It is a free gift to us that is to impact our daily lives here in the present now. What we need to do is put the helmet on and apply it. What we need to do is proclaim it and tell others that today is the day of salvation so that they too can put the helmet on and live their lives for Christ. Now to our last piece of the armoury, which is the sword of the Spirit, verse 17, the second part of verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the Roman sword was called the, the gladius, which is from which you get your word for gladiator in Latin, or in Greek it was the machaira. It was a 
short sword, about two feet long, and weighed about two pounds. Because of its smaller size, it was designed to be wielded easily with hand-to-hand combat. And uh, so you have your sword in one hand and your shield on another. Its size meant it could be drawn at close quarters. So you could be, this is, you know, in the middle of a, of a bloody battle, you've got fighting going all around us so you can wheel this thing at will. In this context, it, it served both as an offensive weapon and also as a defensive weapon. It was double-edged and designed so that the, the legionnaire could cut and thrust from any position. So in the hands of a skilled uh, man, it was a fearsome weapon. Uh, I was just watching some of the scenes uh, from Gladiator and, and some of the skill. Obviously, they were practicing and they were acting on all this, but some of these guys were really good in the way that they wielded the sword. And this lethal weapon, especially when the, the, when the Romans used it, it was, became known as the sword that conquered the world. That's how good these guys were um, in these, with this gladius, the sword, the short sword. There's something interesting to note here. Every piece of the armour of God, with the exception of this one, and I need to highlight this again, everything was for defensive purposes. There is only one offensive piece of armour and that is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Bible. As the incarnate living Word, Jesus used God's Word as a defence against the devil's temptations. We read... In, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And, and, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he came to him in his moment of weakness, and he said, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan knew full well that Jesus was the Son of God. But he prefaced each of his attacks by saying, if you are the Son of God. He wanted to put doubts, even in Jesus' mind, in this vulnerable moment, this moment of weakness, he wanted to throw doubts. He wanted to pull Christ away from his dependence upon the Father and the, and the realisation that he was here to undo the works of Satan and to do the Father's will. He wanted to derail his mission to save us even before it started. And each time, each time that Jesus used the scriptures to defend against and refute Satan's temptations. But it wasn't just as a defence, he also went on the attack. So first, use the sword to block and then to attack. 
This is what we read in in the rest of the, the passage, Matthew chapter 4, verses 10 to 11. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan! Away from me! For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. And when you think about it, there are obviously many similarities between the physical and the spiritual sword, but there are also some differences. For one thing, the more you use a physical sword, like your normal knife, what happens? It loses its sharpness, it becomes blunt. right? But using the Word of God only makes it sharper in our lives. Then, the physical sword requires the strength of the soldier to wield it and sustain it, to keep swinging all day, right? And you're going to get tired. But the sword of the Spirit has its own power in it, which is inherited in it. powerful. Also, the physical sword wounds to hurt and kill, while the spiritual sword, like a, like a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon, wounds to heal and to give life. And this is what he talks about in Hebrews. The word of God is described as a sword, but, but it's also more like the language of, of a surgeon. For the word of, the, of God is, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 So it divides the undividable. It's got to be pretty sharp to do that. If you thought you can cut thin slices, this cuts even thinner. It can accomplish what nothing else can. It gets to the very heart of the matter. God's word is the best means to both defend and to attack. So what should our attitude be when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? And I'm going to say three things here. First of all, we need to be wise. We need to be wise. The Bible is God's wisdom for our lives. But we need to be wise how we apply it. And, and, and one of the worst ways to use your, your sword is to read it out of context or read into it your own cultural biases or how you're feeling. In, in biblical, when I was doing preaching and all of this, this is called eisegesis. Instead of exegesis, what the text says, eisegesis says, what does this mean to you? Not what it says. That's giving it my own interpretation. 
For instance, if I read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, and think, well, I'll own this as God's promise to me. Amen. So what I'm going to do is I've determined that my goal for January next year is to play tennis in the Australian Open. Because I've just, I've just owned God's promise to me. So I'm going to play. You're going to see me on television. I own that. Okay? Thank you. That's not what the verse says, is it? The original context of this verse is Paul who is incarcerated and can't escape, even though God did free him in the past, right? We know that. He wasn't going to free him this time from this situation. God has other plans for him. And, and he has learned, possibly, he says, he has learned to be content whatever the circumstances he has learned to be content, in other words, whatever God's will is. He has adjusted his own expectations to God's will. Whether it's freedom, whether it's jail, or whether it's death, he will submit to that. That's what it means to be contented. So be wise. Secondly, be prepared. As we know, when the sword is sharpened, it cuts a lot better. And going to battle with a blunt sword is pretty stupid, very foolish. And in 1 Peter 3.15, we, hear, we read those words, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. To properly you know, use and, and wield this weapon, you've got to learn all you can about it. Because if we don't have a solid knowledge of the Scriptures, we're not going to be able to give a proper explanation. And there's a lot of atheists, there's a lot of people who belong to the cults. They're going to twist and turn the Scriptures or point out some of the, the more difficult passages or problems with this or that in order to cut through our arguments. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Don't be lazy. Sharpen the sword. You've got to be ready to give an answer to these difficult questions. So this desire to, to become knowledgeable in God's word, skilled in the use of the sword, keep practicing. Lift it up you will, and you will discover that it has its own power. You're not going to get tired of it. You're not going to get bored by it. And this has to come from within. And the spirit within will give you the strength will give you the knowledge to use the sword of the Spirit. Philip Brooks, 
you might have heard his name. He was the, the pastor the, who wrote uh, A Little Town of Bethlehem. He, he described the Bible as, as a telescope. And this is what he meant when he said that. He says, if a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, he does not see anything but that. Can you see the difference? Through and at. The Bible is a thing to be looked through, to see and appreciate what is beyond. But most people only look at it and so they see only a dead letter. And he's right, of course, uh, because many people read the Bible. Have you heard that conversation with someone who says, have you read the Bible? And says, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read it. And they probably have. These people read the Bible for its history, for its poetry, for its wisdom, for its philosophy, for its legal precepts and for its moral mandates. You can read the Bible like you're looking at a telescope. Oh, look at that beautiful telescope. Without ever peering through the eyeglass and open your eyes to the wonders. There's a, there's a story from... Um, a seminary professor who was visiting the, the Holy Land uh, around Jerusalem. And uh, he met a man who claimed to have memorized the whole of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Needless to say, the astonished professor asked for a demonstration. So a few days later, they sat together in the man's home and he says, Where shall we begin? asked the man. And Psalm 1, replied the professor. He, it was, and the professor was an avid student of the Psalms. So beginning with Psalm 1, 1, the man began to recite from memory while the professor followed the text in his Hebrew Bible. For two hours, the man continued word for word without a mistake as the professor simply sat in silence listening to him from memory. When the demonstration was over, the professor discovered something even more astonishing about the man. He was an atheist. He was an atheist. Do you think... The devil knows the Bible? Do you think his demons know the Bible? They know it. That's why that he's always trying to get us not to read it. Or to just look at it as a as any other book. And here you see this. This guy, he, 
he knew the scriptures better than most Christians ever will and yet didn't believe in God. I find that so, yeah, it's amazing, but it's, there's a lot of people exactly like that. And thirdly, when it comes to the sword of the Spirit, we need to be nourished, which is, which is when we start to peer through the telescope. We need to be nourished. We need to be fed. We need to be constantly meditating, reflecting and and feeding on God's word to allow God to speak to us through it. So before we wield the sword to cut somebody else, it needs to be operating on us. Here is what the psalmist said about God's word in Psalm 119, 101 to 104. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding Therefore, I hate every false way. So this is the attitude and and approach to God's word that a a good swordsman needs. A hatred for evil, a love for God's word and, and a continual desire to understand and obey his judgments. God's way of life, may it become mine. Finally, I want to conclude our short series within the series about the armour of God is that you might have noticed that the whole armour of God is actually a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the truth, John 14.6. He is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. He is the supreme object of our faith, John 6.35. And he is our salvation, Luke 2.30. And he is the word of God, John 1.1. And this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 13.14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have just looked at it as an armour, but in another part, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves in Jesus Christ. And until until the day that this war ends, or he calls us home, we have our saviour and warrior who calls us to fight the battle and to make a stand because he's there, right there with us in the battle. May God bless us as we wear his armour. Amen. Please stand. Our last song uh, this morning is The Stand.
us to keep standing 